0: Hello and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Dearly, Father, we do thank you. We do praise you for these things. I do pray, Father, that your spirit would be here today just to open our eyes, just so that we can see you, Father, and glorify you. We want to pray, Father, for the enemy to be bound. We want to pray, Father, that uh, we would be your servants and see the plain truths that are in front of us. Father, we can be blinded and deceived so easily. And I pray, Father, that we would be found faithful and true come that glorious day, Father, that we do stand before You. Help us to receive this teaching, process this, and give things over to You where they belong. We trust You. We love You. We believe in You, Father. We thank You for sending Your Son, Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, we've been going through the book of Luke, and as we're going through the gospel of Luke, we're starting to see that Jesus is now going into Dodge City, if you would. He's looking for the showdown at the OK Corral, and he's looking for a fight. Jesus is walking into town, and he's now going to say he knows that there's going to be a confrontation, if you would, between him and the religious leaders of the day. And uh, Jesus has been priming and and teaching his disciples, and now he's focused on one thing, and that's the cross. And uh, he's now realizing who he's coming against are these people. And just to get a a flavor for what's being said and done, uh, let's start with verse 45. It's kind of the end of Luke chapter 20, and we're going to backtrack and see where he leads. But just so that you understand that I'm telling you the, the straight truth, I'm not making anything up. You just understand where Jesus goes with his text. He says, verse 45, he says, Then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware, be on guard, be alert, pay attention. Beware of the scribes. And the scribes were the people that copied the law. They were the educated, smart people that could tell you exactly what their Bible said. Not everybody had a copy of their Bible, so you were entrusting yourself to the scribes to tell you God's Word. kind of went to their head, though. Because Jesus says, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes. They want everyone to see their fine clothing. They love these scribes. They love the greetings in the marketplaces. Oh, Rabbi, oh, Scribe, oh, you're such a wonderful man of God. They just eat that up. They, they also are desiring to have the best seats in the synagogues. We just got to sit down there and get the box seats so that everybody can see that we are, are, are rich and successful and we're powerful. And they also like the best places at feasts. The first guy out the door, out of the service to go get there for that big piece of steak off the grill first. They don't want seconds, they want to be the first. And nevertheless, these people that most people would look up to, respect and admire, these very people are the same ones who devour widows' houses. They just step on the poor. They kick the uh, old ladies out in the street. And they commit injustices in the name of their love for money. And it says, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense, a pretense, they're pretending, they make long prayers And so, these these people will receive a greater condemnation. They have a a desire for the best seats in, in the house, and Jesus is saying they're going to get the best seat in hell. And that's about what Jesus thinks of these people that are so religious. They're playing the religious card to impress everybody that they're wonderful, mighty men of God. Come and look at me and be like me. I'm a mighty man of God, and I want everyone to see it. And Jesus is attacking these people. He's on the offensive. He's being rude. He's in their face. And he's not holding back any punches. I think Jesus is cutting as hard as he can to make his point, that Jesus is fed up with this. And it's always amazing that that people, for whatever reasons, you would think if you wanted to be a crook, a a weasel, a thief, you would just come right out and, and be that way but i don't know what it is about the world the world wants to have an air of religiosity it wants everyone to think that they're godly people when in their hearts when in their hearts they're not and i think that's the biggest joke you could ever do is fake or or feign something to impress god and god i think looks right at you and says man i see right through your little game i see right through the things that you're doing who do you think you're fooling and, and and for you and I, uh, it, it's amazing to see how many people over time, actually, virtually, listen to this, create a false religion. People people sit down there and and they want to fall into uh, a false religion. If you read the Old Testament. God has a conniption. I mean, he's blowing a gasket over this thing called idolatry. God, you know, he's like, for the life of me, I can't figure out why I could make a man, give man a planet, and this guy who has the option to worship the true and living God, who has all power and all-knowing and is such a wonderful, loving God, would instead decide to turn around and worship a rock. And, and and God's like I, I just I, I don't get it. What's the attraction with a rock? Well, why why do men have to worship rocks? Or stones, things that they create, things that they make. There's a story of a guy who gets the uh, contractor's license. He gets his contractor's license and he gets this job to go out and to work for the uh, the mafia boss. And uh, he knows he's going into a place that uh, this guy would probably want to have some trick doors put in and some hidden things, and he's figuring, you know, that he's going to sit down with this guy and and he's going to tell him how to build his house, this mansion that this guy who was a a very crooked guy, mafia-type stuff, and so he goes up and he has the planning meeting with this big mafia boss, and the guy's telling him, he goes, I want this, I want this, I want this. And the guy turns around and he says, and not only that, I want to have a hello statue in every room. The contractor looked at it and says, a hello statue? So not looking like an idiot in front of the guy, he just shuts his mouth, he takes down all the notes and he walks out the door. He turns around and he asks a couple of his friends, he goes, man, have you ever heard of a hello statue? Friends going, I've never heard of it. And he goes, well, it well, you know, must be some Catholic thing or something. So, runs over up. to the Catholic priest. And he says, man, I got this mafia boss. I really got to impress him. Big contract. He's looking for a hello statue. What's a hello statue? Priest goes, I've never heard of a hello statue. So he asks you around and he goes down to the craft shops. He goes everywhere he can. And he can't find anybody that knows what a hello statue is. And this guy's just adamant. I've got to have a hello statue in every room. So... Finally, the guy turns around after a week of searching. and he goes back to the mafia boss and he says, man, he goes, I have looked and looked. And he says, I I, I don't know what a hello. St- I'm sorry. I, I don't understand. It. I, what's a hello statue? He goes, yeah, you know, he goes, a hello statue. You know, He goes, ring, ring. He goes, hello, statue. This is where you laugh. No. <laughs> I like that. An idol. No. And so many times we get things confused. <laughs> Never mind. That's an old Frank Sinatra joke, so you know. Just remember that's where that came from. But uh, uh, maybe it comes better from him, you know, when he's involved in the mob, you know. But anyway, uh, idolatry has always been something that's just plagued mankind with God. and 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 to worship an idol, a, a thing of stone, something that's made out of the craftsmanship. And it's interesting, if you go back into the Old Testament, you see that there's a glimpse, a window of why idolatry takes place. There's methods of the madness of people that want to have an idol. You can see this scene that goes all the way back to when King Solomon died, he left the kingdom to his son Rehoboam. And Rehoboam turned around and was going to be a, a, a man that was going to be cruel. And so this guy Jeroboam turns around and he leads a rebellion to the the people to the, to the south. He, he starts the northern kingdom all off on his own and he splits the kingdom. And it's very important, if you understand the story, this is what God told him to do. He said, this guy Rehoboam is wrong and I want you to split the kingdom up to, to teach you know, the people to the south a lesson. And so Jeroboam rips the kingdom apart and it starts a division between the north and the south, which is now called Israel to the north, Judah to the south. And all of a sudden, Rehoboam turns, or sorry, Jeroboam turns around and he starts scratching his head and he says, man, i got a problem here. You know, I, I, I led the revolt. I've set, you know separated the country in half. But you know what? The guys down south, they got the good thing. They got the temple. And you know what? If I've got all these people up here that are mine and they're now listening to me and I've started a new nation, we've separated and rebelled, well, gee, I've got a whole bunch of Jews and Jews are going to go want to go down to Jerusalem to the temple once a year, twice a year, three times a year, and pretty soon their hearts are going to be turned over and I'm going to lose the rebellion. And it says clearly in 1 Kings chapter 12 that Jeroboam faced with this problem. It says in verse 26, it says that Jeroboam said in his heart, he said, hmm, he said, now the kingdom will return to the house of David. And Jeroboam is saying, man, I'm going to lose the people that I just caused to rebel against them. They're all going to go back down south. And he says, he says, if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. So they're going down there and they're going to perform their sacrifices. It says, then the heart of this people people who are going to turn back will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And then he figures that out. If all the people go back, then my rebellion's a waste of time, and they're going to turn around, and it says, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So I can't have everyone going back down there for church on Sunday, so I might as well turn around, and I know what I'll do. I'll create a new religion. And so the king consulted and made... Two golden calves. Not to be confused with Aaron's calves. This is a whole different incident where he's going to turn around and say, Look, here's your golden calves. And he said to them, Oh, people! He says, It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. You don't have to go over to that Jerusalem anymore. He says, Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. And so he set one in Bethel and the other one he put in Dan. He put one to the south and one to the north to make it convenient and simple for the people. And you have to understand that when you see people start to fall into a false religion, a place of idolatry, they're there because they want to be there. And they're led there by people that want to, number one, manipulate other people. Please understand, that's the motivation. And notice if you would, he's desiring specifically to take the hearts of men. That's what he wants. And then he wants the number two, he wants to control those people. And then it's important, notice that he's doing this to defend himself. I don't want to die. They could kill me. So in order not to die, I'm going to fabricate, create a false religion of a golden calf and tell people to do this, which is eventually what's going to lead to the fourth point, is that it's a bold-faced lie. Behold your gods that took you out of Egypt. And so now, if you would, there's a complete, there's a complete turnover of, of, of God who is loving and caring for His people and trying to interact with them. It's now turned into a, a, a stupid piece of metal, a shiny piece of gold. And, and Jeroboam's propagating this. He's pushing this. He's demanding this on the people, only to defend himself, to manipulate someone else for his own gain. And, and God looks at that and says, Man, how... How can that be? How can somebody worship a rock? How can somebody worship a shiny piece of metal? How can somebody take a tree trunk and sit down there and carve out a little face out of it, prop it up, and bow down to it? Where do, where do men go wrong to do such crazy things when, when they have everything and they've changed it for a cheap, lousy substitute? And then if you would, this is exactly what this is exactly what Jesus is walking into. That Jerusalem has fallen into. A trap of being deceived again. They, they have created religion to be an idol unto itself. They worshipped their religion. We're the Jews. We're so smart. We're so good. We're better than everyone else. We have such wonderful things. And, and they started to worship themselves of all things. And Jesus is looking at it, and he knows he's going into dodge, and he knows he's got to get into a fight, and he's taking this thing on dead on. He's, he's ex- explaining to us a very simple truth, and I can only explain to you that, that this is still alive and well in church today. Uh, uh, the majority, it seems, of Christians fall right into this very same trap. And I'm only telling you, it is explained in very simple black and white terms. And yet so many of us can miss the obvious. I don't know why, but we still do today. So back up, if you would, that Jesus is going against these people with their big, long prayers, their false pretenses, and always want to be number one. And let's go back to verse 17 of chapter 20. And we get a little review of what we covered last Sunday. And then he looked at them and he said, what then is this that is written? He says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And so he's saying a lot of people reject certain things. They're, they're blind to it. But it's the very truth, the cornerstone of what God wants to bring about. God's doing something different that goes against the flow. Whoever falls on that stone, the stone of God, if you would, will be broken. You have to sit down there and say, Lord, I'm empty, I need you. But if you don't, and that stone comes upon you, it says, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And hence, we don't want to fight God. We want to work with God. But it says clearly that the chief priests and the scribes, the very religious people, that very hour sought to lay hands on him. So they want to kill Jesus because they want to reject his teaching. But they feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. So please just hear that Jesus is in combat mode. He's speaking against a group of people. The people understand that Jesus is teaching against them. And Jesus is trying to say, we cannot fall into the trap of these people. This is a, a clear-cut war. There's, there's hatred, there's anger, and it's turning down to a nasty dogfight. So please, if you would, it says, verse 20, So they watched him, and listened to this, and they sent spies tiptoe around in their little cloak and daggers, who pretended to be righteous. So there's a group of people now walking around and they're going to come up to Jesus and they're pretending. They're pretending that they're righteous and holy and men of God. But they're not. And they deliberately have a plan that they might seize on His words. They're trying to trip Jesus up into a language barrier. They might seize on His words in order to deliver Him through the power and the authority of the governor. So they have a plan they're setting a trap, and they're deliberately being malicious on how they're coming to God, to Jesus. So don't, don't misunderstand the context of the things that are said in the next chapter, because it's definitely with a fight in mind on both sides. And really, if you would, if you read these next few chapters, you've got to understand that this is all a game from here. Truth is out the window. They're not arguing about truth. It's now just a shell game. It's a it's a battle of wits, and you got to hear this. It's, it's amazing. It says, and then they asked him. So these guys who are pretending to be righteous, and they go and they come up and they go, teacher, oh, we know that you say and teach rightly, and that you do not show personal favoritism. But you, you teach the way of God in truth. Man, they're just, they're just laying it on Jesus thick. They're just laying it on it, and they're kissing up to Him, and they're walking up with their false pretense of being holy and righteous, wanting to stick a dagger in Jesus at any time. And notice how it's just, it's just coming at you with this wonderful, flowery, you know, uh, oh, you're so righteous and smart and great and good. It's Jesus who also said in Luke chapter 6, he says, Beware of all men when they speak well of you. <laughs> and, and, and you and I, if, if if you see people walking up to you and going, Oh, man, you are great and smart and wonderful. Uh, I hope you got the time of, uh, and, the, and the brains to understand somebody's probably getting ready to stab you in the back. When you hear an overwhelming, flattering comment about yourself, to me, I take one step back and look and say, Where's the, where's the, uh, the crosshook coming across at me? And you have to sit down there. These guys, oh, teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly. And you do not show personal favoritism, but you teach the way of God and truth. And then they stick their little dagger out, and now they're going to say, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? I'm really curious. And they come across like they'd like to know an answer, but they don't want to know an answer. They just want to say, Jesus, however you answer this question, we got you. Because if you turned around and said, well, you know, uh, uh, you have to pay your taxes to Caesar, then they could turn around and say, well, see, Jesus is a government agent. He's, he's, you know, he's not really for God or anything. And, and, and you know, he's just you know, working for the government. And if he turned around and he says, no, you don't pay taxes to Caesar, then they could say, see, Jesus is a rebellious guy. He's starting an insurrection. And he's just you know, a contentious guy. And they go, we got this guy good. Jesus, you know, we're going to nail you on this one. So is it lawful? They notice it's just a simple question. Hey, you know, it's, it's, it's coated with a whole bunch of sugar. And they go, but, you know, we're going to see how you answer this. But Jesus, he perceived, verse 23, their craftiness. And he realizes this is just a game. And he said to them, why do you test me? What are you doing here? You know, I see through your little cloak and dagger routine. You're not impressing me, and I'm not fooled by your flattery. He goes, show me a denarius. Give me a coin. And then he says, now whose image and inscription does it have? Well, uh, they answered, and they go, "Mm, Caesar's. Well, okay. And he said to them, then render or pay to, therefore to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And so Jesus gives a good answer. He's turning around and saying, well, you know, it's Caesar's coin. Give it to him. You use his stuff. Give it back to him. But there's things of God. You give it back to there. And they're going, oh, man, I really wish. I thought we had Jesus on that one. And they're going, man, good answer. You know, I mean, you know, I don't like that. But, you know, I thought we could nail him. Now, please, as we look at that teaching, I want you to understand that Jesus is in the midst of an argument. He's giving you a, a, a political, rhetorical, outwitting answer to not get caught in a trap. This is not Jesus' teaching on giving. Uh, we're going to get into that in a little bit. But, but please, don't. I've, I've heard a lot of Christians take this as like this is some law. And when Jesus is doing this, he's, he's turning around and he's, he's only trying to dodge a bullet. And he's very witty to see a bullet coming, and he's dodging a bullet, but this isn't what he's mainly going to teach on giving. And so uh, uh, it's just a diplomatic political answer, if you would. And he's trying to just say, hey, uh, there are things of God, and there are things of Caesar. There's truth to what he's saying, but I, I don't know how far you want to take that as you know the way that we live our life. Because it says they could not catch him, verse 26, and that's what they're trying to do, trip him up, snare him, and catch him in his words, in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer. And they go, what can we say? That was a good answer. They kept silent. So they seem to strike out with Jesus. So up comes the second at bat, and that's going to be the Sadducees. It says, then some of the Sadducees, and notice what it says, who deny that there is a resurrection. So first off, just understand that this is a hopeless lot of people. Think of this as a religious group of people. And you go, what kind of religion would teach that there's no resurrection? There's no afterlife. There's no, there's no nothing that happens. You're just some dog, and when you die, you go back into, you know, turn it back up, the daisies, if you would. There's no difference. There's no afterlife. There's no spiritual thing. And, and you think of that. You go, who would want to teach such a thing? Well, the people that teach such things are those that it's not that they're trying to gain something. It's trying to get away from something. And there is a concept to realize that if we are created by God and if we are to stand before God on judgment day, then there comes with that the connotation that some of the things I do in my life, I'm going to have to give an answer for. And if I want to be a sexual deviant, and uh, I don't particularly want to answer to God for that, then uh, uh, I'm going to have to eradicate, get rid of the whole concept of God. And these people were, uh, the Sadducees were notoriously very rich. They were aristocratic. They were people that were very high up in government. And they said, well, do whatever we want to do. And so they, they, by their own teaching, by their own wisdom, and by their own explanations, have explained God out of the situation so that they could continue to do whatever they wanted to. And there are people that are like that today. They spiritually have eliminated God. And only so that they could have a free will to do whatever they want. But it says, enough of the background, it says, then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection... And, uh, and there's, uh, they came to him, and they asked him, saying, uh, Teacher, uh, Moses wrote... So when they're saying Moses, that's like the authority to every Jew. He says that Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, that's very true. That was what the law commanded. Uh, God wanted to keep the family farm in the family. Uh, uh, it was his principle that Jews would own Israel and that uh, they wouldn't have other people coming in and buying and selling the, the, the family farm, if you would. So, you got uh, this guy turns around and he gets married and uh, he dies and his wife doesn't have an heir or a son to inherit the farm. Well, then his brother would have an obligation to take his wife to conceive a child with that uh, woman, and then that child would bear his father's name, and hence the family name would live on, and the brother did his family duty. And uh, that's good for the Jews to do. It's not necessarily something for us to do today, but the the Jews would turn around and say, "Well, if this be true, this just you know we're going to come up with this great argument here." He says, uh, now, let's just suppose, okay, that there were seven brothers, if this were to be true, and the first took a wife and died without children, okay? Well, then the second one comes in and he takes her as his wife, and he dies childless. Uh Uh-oh. Well, then the third took her, and in like manner, all the way down to the seventh also. And they all left no children and died. Now, last of all, the woman died also. So finally, this lady dies after having all seven brothers. And I guess you could say that she finally ate some of her own cooking, right? (laughs) I guess you'd want to say, if I was like the fifth or sixth brother, I'd be saying, Hey, what are you feeding my brothers here? They're all killing over here. So I don't know. I guess she's turning her out and she's sitting there saying, Okay, she's dead And now these guys think that they're real witty and they're real smart. They go, Well therefore, if this strange case would be true, therefore in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all had her as a wife. So they're sitting back there thinking that they're so cocky, they're so smart, and they're going, we've really out this whole thing. Because, you know, she's going to get resurrected up in heaven, and then, you know, where would she go in the resurrection? So if that be true, the whole concept of Moses and resurrection, it's just a joke. There's no resurrection. The law contradicts the path of what a resurrection up in heaven would be. Jesus turns around and he goes, man, you you just don't understand. Jesus answered and he said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. That's a human thing. But those who are counted worthy, interesting language here, to obtain to that age, in other words, to be resurrected... And in the resurrection from the dead, when you get to heaven, he says, neither marry nor are given in marriage. That's an earthly thing. You don't carry your marriage off into heaven. Nor can they die any more. For they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So Jesus is saying, when you get up into heaven, what you think your life is going to be is not what it is here. It's not just a continuation. It's a whole different thing, and you can't tie that concept together. And then he turns around and he says, you know, I want to just finish this. He says, But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised. And when he called the Lord, uh, uh, when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living; for all live to him. Now I find this amazing that Jesus is turning around and he's a- he's going to answer the question to say, "Of course, there's a resurrection." Now I, I look at this and I marvel sometimes. I, I-, I-, I- I'm trying to understand the Sadducees. Here's a group of people that I suppose they just had the Old Testament, and their argument is is that there is no 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 resurrection. I scratch my head. I says, How could a, a Jew come up to that conclusion? I, you know, and I kind of picture them sitting around in a coffee shop, you know. Uh, before Jesus shows up, and they're sitting down there trying to hold their own in the debate. And says, there is no resurrection. There is nothing that's going to happen. We all, God just created us. We live on this earth, and then we die, and we just you make the most of life. That was their philosophy. And they would actually sit down there and take the text and say, well, God, th- you show me where it says that. It is very interesting. It's a powerful argument of a Jehovah's Witness today. They'll hand you the Bible and say, show me a verse that says you go to heaven. And you'll find many a Christian sits back and says, Well, uh, 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 I don't know. Well, you know, First Peter chapter three turns around and makes it pretty clear that you know that we have a place in in heaven enthroned. Uh, You know, First Peter chapter one verse three. I'm sorry says that we have a a, a, that we're enthroned at the right hand with God in the heavens. There are verses that have that, but I mean honestly, you throw the New Testament out the window and put yourself in the place of a Jew at that time. They didn't have the New Testament. They just got the Old Testament, and you turn around and says hmm, that's kind of a daunting task. Where is the verse in the Old Testament that says that we all go to heaven? And and, and I look at this, and and first off, I, I just wonder how many of the Sadducees sat down and just, you know, you hear somebody bring up an idea and they'd shoot it down, and they probably thought that they had some type of just cause to say, there's no verses in the Old Testament that says you go to heaven. I mean, just really try and take that on. Now, I want you to look at this because Jesus comes up and he answers the Scripture in a most bizarre way. I think his answer is almost, you know, finite, minutely insane almost. And yet, I look at this and I go, now, if you were to give me the Old Testament and say, show me where there's a resurrection and afterlife, honestly, I go, Jesus, I could have picked out some better verses for you than the one that you picked. I certainly would have turned around and said, well, let's go to Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah stands before the throne of God and he sees God high and lifted up on his throne and he sees the heavenly host up there. Well, certainly that would be a much better verse to quote Jesus, don't you think? How about King David when King David turns around and quotes in the Psalms umpteen times different places, but he says, hey, I'd rather spend a day in the courts of the Lord than a thousand in the courts of man. And certainly David is leading us to the promise of an everlasting life. And certainly you could sit down there and see, hey, here's uh, 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 you know, Elijah, the chariot of fire, coming down to pick him up and take him up to heaven. How about that, Jesus? Don't you think that would have been a much better argument? But Jesus, what he does is he turns around and he quotes this bizarre passage about Moses standing in front of God in front of the burning bush. And now I could sit down and read that passage all day long, and I don't think I would have extrapolated out of that passage that Jesus is talking about a resurrection. Or, or God, you know, the Bernie Bush is talking about a resurrection. And he turns around and he picks up something and he says, hey, he says, uh, when, when, when God spoke to Moses, he used the name, the title of I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And, and Jesus' argument is when, when, when God was speaking to Moses, the understanding is, hey, these dudes are right here with me. It's present tense. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're right here. I'm a God of resurrection. And I think I could have read that, you know, a hundred times, and I don't think I would have gotten that out of it. But I look at it and I go, ooh, that's really true. That's really good, Jesus. And I look at it now and I go, good answer. And, and I really think that Jesus is saying, you guys have been sitting around hacking and arguing in coffee shops for forever. And he goes, I want to show you something you're not even thinking about. I want to show you something that, that probably is going to catch you off guard. Think of it this way. And they're going, oh, didn't quite think of it. Like, well, um, it, uh, now, uh, now, uh, now you think about it. It does make sense, Jesus. And uh, uh, we well, are. Yeah. And what Jesus is basically saying in so many words, he's saying, hey, you know, you guys are coming up here as religious leaders and really you're stupid as the day is long. You haven't even read your Bible. You don't even understand what it says. You don't even know what's going on in your life. You're clueless. And I think, you know, Jesus' idea is, you know, there are things that are right in front of us that, that we're blind to. And he's speaking to these people that says, how can you be so religious to sit there with such an arrogant attitude and you're so blind to things that are in the Word of God right in front of you? It, it, it's it's an interesting debate for Jesus. And I think the scribes are going, well, uh, uh, verse 39. Then some of the scribes, and it's interesting, the Sadducees asked them the questions. The scribes were the people that liked to dress in their long robes. But they were the people that always wanted to say, the scribe, the the, the guy who copied it over, said you need to listen to every letter of the word of God. And so the scribes come up and they go, man, you slammed the Sadducees. Good answer. Teacher, you've spoken well. You slammed our opponent. but, But everyone's like, man, but don't ask Jesus questions, man. He really knows what he's talking about. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. And so Jesus turns around and says, man, you guys want to have a little word game here? Let me ask you a question. He says, and then he said to them, hey, how's this? How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? You know how you're supposed to get a Messiah, and that Messiah is going to be of the lineage of King David? That's the way it's supposed to be, and all of them go, yeah, yeah, okay, so what's your point? And he says, well, then David, if you go back and look at David himself, said in the book of Psalms, when David's writing, he turns around, and, and when David says this, he says, The Lord said to my Lord... And Jesus is going to go, who do you think what do you mean, the Lord? The Lord, capital L O R D, said to my Lord, capital L small O R D, who you got a Lord speaking to a Lord of David. So obviously the Lord would be Jehovah God, the God of the Old Testament. And then you're going to see a reference to the little Lord, if you would, which would be the Messiah. And so if, if the Messiah is speaking to God, if you would, and God comes up and speaks to the Messiah and says, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. So God's promise to the Messiah is that he's going to whoop on everybody till he can uh, establish the Messiah. And David says, well, uh, therefore David calls him Lord. Hey, if, 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 why would David call the Messiah Lord if he's then his son? Wouldn't he call him Sonny Boy. And so who is the Messiah supposed to be? Uh, The son of David? Well, all the people turned around and they're going, well, uh, I'd rather not think about this. You're you're kind of throwing a brain teaser at me and I don't have an answer. In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, then he goes into our verse, he says, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes. They love the greetings in the marketplaces the best seat in the synagogues, in the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, they're pretending, they make long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. And so Jesus is making a very simple truth. He's teaching something that sometimes people who think they know it all, really, they don't. And it irritates. God, that God would sit down and say, You're not as smart as you think you are. And it is amazing to see man that always loves to come up with an argument against God. I know why I don't believe in God, because, you know, I could never believe in such a mean, angry God. Let's just say, let's just say I was a leprechaun and I was on uh, the dark side of the moon and I had AIDS. And I just didn't have the name to hear, the time to hear that J E S U S was the Lord. And you're telling me if I don't have J E Jesus as my Savior, that I'm going to burn in hell, well, I could never accept that because I could be a leprechaun on the dark side of the moon. And you want to just look at somebody and go, shut up. You know, you and all your what ifs, what could be, and what might be, why don't we just talk about you? Let's look at your heart. Is your heart right with God? Do you have a desire and care to love one another? No. Well, then, doesn't that speak volumes enough for where it is? Doesn't that answer it? And so many times, people want to. They want to create an escape route of their wisdom and their intellectualism and other than to deal with the very truth that's in front of them. Man loves, listen to this, man loves to Hey, I'm religious, I'm spiritual, I'm wonderful, I'm a great man of God. And you should be like me. And, and I'm going to give you a long prayer until I can put on a big phony act because really I don't care about anyone else. But I want you to think that I'm something spiritual. It's man's desire to be fake and phony. There is, there is inside of you and I a desire that we would want people to think more of us than they should. It's something that, that, that grabs into our life and it rips us at the very core of who we are. We know what it's like to be in elementary school, junior high and be picked on because we're funny looking and big ears and weird nose. And, and, and for one reason or another, there's, there's, there's a part of us that says, I'm tired of being picked on. I'm tired of being hurt. And there's a part of us that says, I just want to be right. I just want to be better than everyone else. I want to finally grow up. And when I grow up, I'm going to have money and I'm going to show everybody that I'm OK. And Jesus is looking at that and says, that is such a wicked root in man's heart that just feels that he has to prove something to somebody else and is willing to put on a pretense to say, I'm all right, I'm good, I'm better than everyone else. You look at me, i got a big house on the hill, i got a portion, I'm all right. And Jesus is looking at it and he says, man, trap of the devil. You don't ever fall into thinking that who and what you are is wrapped up in your possessions and and impressing people. It has nothing to do with that. When you can come to a place in your life where you finally sit down and rest and say, Lord, I am who you made me, and and I'm weak and I'm lonely and I need love, And, and I want you, Father, to come into my life, I need a relationship then God's going to say, I'm I'm willing, I'm able, and I'll do everything I can. I'm the creator of the universe, and I designed you and made you, and I want you to be with me. And and that's entering into a true relationship with God. But all of us fight that yoke of, of bondage that wants to impress somebody with our stuff in order to make a point. And so Jesus turns around, he almost, in a low blow, a cheap shot, dirty hitting, he's got to put things in a clear, simple perspective, Luke chapter 21. And so he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he also, uh, and he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites, two little copper coins. Poor old lady comes up, cling, cling, drops in her two cents. And he said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she, out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood that she had. And so, if you would, this Jesus is now going to teach on giving. It's not so much of the, you know, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But notice, if you would, in his teaching on giving, he's saying that when you give and when you live before God, you are going to turn around and do it because it's the, the right thing to do. You're not going to do it to impress, to gain hold of, and to showboat. We don't need to sit down and say, look, I'm giving a million dollars today. I'm such a benevolent lover of, of the, your church, and here's a million dollars. God's like, I don't need to hear it. What what I need to see is somebody who says, you know what? What little I do have, I will give to God. Because somebody there recognizes the ownership of their life over to God. When you turn around and say, God owns everything that I have. And when I give, I want to give because it's the right thing to do. Lord, you've given me something. I want to show that you're an owner and I want to give back. A part of me says, I want the Lord to bless my finances. I want the Lord to bless my my life. I want the Lord not to be, you know, holding back, you know, the curse uh, of God. I I, I want that to be. And so, Lord, I I want to be faithful to say, Lord, you've given something to me and I'll take whatever I have. I'm going to give it. And so many times we do fall into that trap. Whenever I have enough money, I will give and and we can say you know it's you know we never that's the the ghost the 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 dream that we chase that someday we'll we'll feel like we just got extra amount of money to burn and so when that day happens I'll give but if you're truly giving out of the right heart you're going to say lord my life is yours i want to give i want to share i want to open what i have up because it's the right thing to do not because i have to impress or to do anything you're right we don't suffer too much from that problem of people throwing huge amounts of money into our plate. <laughs> we do have a lot of poor widows that put in the two copper coins. But you know what? I'll take, I'll take the two copper coins any day of the week and know that the Lord will provide for the needs of the church over than somebody else that just wants to sit down there and put on a show. And somehow or another, we have to be able to think and to understand that Jesus is saying, when giving is done right, it is going to be Effective. So notice, if you would, this gets to be a nasty message. He says, uh, verse 5 of chapter 21, he says, And then as some spoke of the temple, so they're walking by this beautiful building, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and, listen to this, donations. And everyone's looking at it and go, man, check out that building. Man, is that beautiful. It's got beautiful artwork, beautiful stones. Man, they didn't spare a buck when they put that thing together. Man, is that nice. And so, uh, as, as he spoke of how uh, these guys are talking about it, he turns around and he says, verse 6, uh, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another. That... Uh, that shall not be thrown down. So Jesus is looking. They're going, to look at the beautiful building, and Jesus says, "I ain't impressed. That means nothing to me. There's going to come a day. It's going to get ripped to shreds. It's all going to burn." And so they asked him, saying, "Well, teacher, but what? But when will these things be? You mean the temple's going to get ripped apart? When's this going to happen? And and what sign will be, there be when these things are, are about to take place?" And he said. Take heed that you not be deceived. So, look out. There's an idea that you can fall into temptation, a trap to be deceived in. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he. The time has drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. For these things must come to pass first. He's telling you, but the end will not come immediately. So he's telling you that, you know, as the world is going to go forward, it's going to take some time for Christ to come back. And there's things that are going to happen in the meantime. What's going to happen in God's kingdom in the meantime? He says, verse 10, he says, Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places, and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. Well, okay, praise the Lord. Happy days are you know, coming here, you know. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. They will, uh, you will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. So, hey, they're going to take you. They're going to drag you through the streets and beat and whip you. Okay. And he says, Jesus goes, hey, but that's okay. You're going to have an awesome opportunity to speak about my love and my mercy. Okay. Thanks, Jesus. This sounds fun. He says, uh, but it will turn out. But it will turn out, verse 13, uh, uh, for you as an occasion for my testimony. Verse 14, Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth, got one of them, and wisdom, lacking some of that, (laughs) which all your adversaries will will not be able to contradict or resist. You're going to say some powerful things at that moment that's just going to be wonderful. But here's the good news. But you will be betrayed even by parents, uh uh-oh, mom, and brothers, relatives, and friends. And they will put some of you to death. Oh, happy day. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And yet he wants to back it up with another promise. He says, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. In other words, God sees it all. He sees the very hairs of your head, but by your patience possesses your souls. So please, I want you to just understand one simple, basic truth that is irrefutable. And I would challenge you to, to challenge me on that. Tell me where I'm wrong on this, but I just want you to see that Jesus has given you a wonderful prophecy of the future. And what he's telling you, in so many words, is that you're going to have nothing. You're going to be spit upon. You're going to be dragged through the streets, and you've got nothing besides a poke in the eye as a sharp stick for a promise. Do you hear that? In what Jesus is saying, and please understand it in context of just what he's saying, he's seeing that so many people are lured away from the things of God because they want to have the things of this world. Can you understand that? that we as Christians fall into traps because we want to be rich, we want to be successful, we want to have all the comfortable things in this world. And somehow or another, we believe that, you know, if I walk with God, that God is going to turn around and bless me and prosper me and give me everything that I ever wanted. My 2.4 children and, and all the wonderful little rosy house and everything that I could ever dream and my little portion in the garage, And you know, God just wants to take care of me. And what Jesus is saying is that's not the way it works. God's going to come up to you, drag you, you know, and, 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 and as you serve God, let's say, you're going to be dragged through the streets, kicked and burned and dragged every which way. And, and Jesus says, guess what? Don't don't worry about it. You're going to go to heaven and everything will be fine. God sees your problems. And you know what? As you're being dragged through the rack and getting ready to fire up the burners to fry you alive, uh, you don't worry about it. You're going to say some wonderful things before they burn you. Oh, Okay. Now, Jesus is saying these things because I I really believe he wants to instill in the church that he's trying to establish a a, a concept to get away from materialism. And, and, And yet the church today is in steeped in materialism. And I'm sorry, I've met many a person that turns around and they turn around and they give their life to the Lord and they go, you know, Pastor, I gave my life to the Lord and I started to serve Jesus and all of a sudden people don't like me at work and I'm losing my friends and I lost my job and I'm getting fired over here and I don't know what's going on. God, help me out. And you go, well, praise the Lord, brother. That's what was promised to you. I don't know if I like this Christian stuff. And yet the whole concept is, is we're not doing this because we want to become wealthy worldwise. We want to become wealthy God-wise. And, 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 you know, the question always has to come down to us is where is your putting your heart? And we have to be willing to say, Lord, take my life, take my heart, and I don't want to be entrapped and ensnared by these things. And Jesus is telling you clear as day about walking in the Spirit versus walking in the world, and Christians just demand to have it both ways. And they're diametrically opposing one another. And yet we always say, no, that can't be. i got to have it both ways. And he tells you, verse 20, he says here, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. It's going to be destroyed. What a beautiful little building. It's all going to be destroyed. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let not those who are in the country enter her. So get away from Jerusalem. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babes in those days. For there will be great distresses in the land, and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until, interesting the phrase is, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What does that mean? Verse 25, And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth, distress of nations with perplexity. What is going on? The sea and the waves roaring. Men's hearts failing them from fear and from the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. (laughs) For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So there's going to come a great day where Jesus comes back and wonderful things are going to take place. But until then, do you hear that? Until then, look for nothing besides a poke in the eye with a sharp stick. Do you hear that? You've got nothing coming to you besides pain, suffering, and destruction. And, 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 and then Jesus Christ will come back and it will all be made right then. Now, when these things begin to happen, you look up. You lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. So Jesus Christ is coming back. We believe that. And what we're going to see is the world fall apart and rip us apart and attack us. And we of all people should at least be able to say, well, then that's not going to bother me. My heart's right with God and he'll get me through it. And I believe that there's a resurrection and I'm going to heaven. But, but you are greatly deceived if you just put these thoughts together to believe that somehow as Christians that everything's going to work your way. God's always going to answer your little prayers so that everything's going to be nice, cute, cozy, and comfortable. And somehow or another you say, well, God, I just thought everything would be fine when I gave my life to you. I thought everything would be good. Now I'm suffering and this isn't right. Well, Jesus is telling you, don't fall into that trap. That trap of, of expecting wealth and finances is wrong. Now, if you're a Christian, you got money, God bless you. God does give finances and great wealth to certain people. And, and, you know, He wants us to be faithful with that, to give and to share with others. And some of us do have a a life of pain and suffering. And, and, you know, God's going to take us on different paths on different things, and yet if our hearts are in the right place, everything is fine. But somehow or another, we always have the gross misconception that, you know, if I just had a million dollars... You know what? If I had a million dollars, all my problems would be solved and I would I would be fine, Lord. And the truth of the matter is, is if you gave me a million dollars, it would be the worst thing you could ever do to me. Gee, that really cuts the offerings down quite a bit, but um it's true. And I have to look at that. And sometimes I go, Lord, you know, we're trying to pay the bills, we're trying to do this, we're trying to do that. And and Lord, where are some finances to come in and take care of us? And yet, sometimes when I'm seeking the Lord and I'm praying daily for my daily bread, Lord, help us just meet the bills today. It keeps me on my knees and expecting the Lord to provide at any given time. And the Lord has so faithfully demonstrated that He meets the needs of those that give to Him. And as we have given to the Lord, the Lord has abundantly supplied the needs of the church. And, you know, it's God who wants to, listen to this, keep us in a place of, you know, say, Lord, I'm right there. And the truth of the matter is, is if I get the million dollars, I turn into Johnny Stupid. I forget everything, and I I don't care about anything, and I, and I, I get tricked. And yet we lust after. We, oh, a million dollars, that would change everything. And God's like, yeah, it would change everything a lot, and I don't think I want that. And, and we need to bind together, live together, need one another, and function as a church, and we're going to take care of the things that are in front of us. And if the, the old lady puts in her two mites, a little widow turns around and does that, well, then praise the Lord, God is going to bless. Put your faith in the Lord to be able to provide in the midst of your crisis that He's going to take care of you. And he turned around and he says, verse 29, then he spoke to them a parable. He says, just look at the fig tree and all the trees when they are already budding you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you look at a tree, you see that it's starting to have green leaves on it, and you go, summer's coming. So you also, when you see these things happening, pain, suffering, sorrow, and agony, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away to all things, till all things take place. So what is he saying? He says, you know, I am... He goes, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. He's saying you can take this to the bank. You can write it in stone. This is as solid as it gets. I'm only telling you, you're going to get a poke in the eye with a sharp stick. Do you hear that? And yet the church continuously wants to be blessed financially to take care of all of its things and says, if I just had money. And Jesus goes, what's wrong with people that they feel that they have to control and manipulate the circumstances around them in order to get something from God? Isn't that idolatry? Isn't that why idols are formed? And and, what is, and man turns around and worships a rock. Hey, let's go worship gold and silver. And God says, you don't worship these things. These are things that you can use and, and they go through you know, the economy type things, but it's not what you worship. You worship God. And how dare you have a cheap substitute? Who would be stupid enough to bow down and worship a rock? You go, it's a rock. And yet man continuously goes over and bows down and worships a rock, an idol, a statue, the working of their hands. And God says, how can man be that dumb? He says, but take heed to yourselves. And Jesus repeats it just so you don't think that I'm twisting, perverting, or creating some huge thing for myself here. He says, but take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing. You get lax in a party attitude your drunkenness. And listen to this, the cares of this life. In that day, come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare. That's a trap. It will come as a trap on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. And Jesus says, Watch therefore. He's telling us, Watch therefore and pray always. How often is always? A lot. And pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. Did you hear that? Jesus just said for you to pray always. I would almost say that that would at least mean every day that you should be praying that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you prayed today? that you would be found worthy to escape the wrath of God? If I'm to be honest with myself, I'd probably say, no, I haven't done that. I kind of like to think that I'm a born-again Christian, and now that I've made my decision for Jesus and was baptized out of the lake, and that now I can just sit back and just enjoy the benefits of the Lord. But listen to what Jesus says, and not to what I say. Jesus just told you that always to pray always to pray that you'd be counted worthy to escape these things and that will come to pass and that you should be able to stand before the Son of Man on Judgment Day. And I I have to admit, I, 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 I don't necessarily do that. There is inside of me, all of us, a sense that we take things for granted and just assume that all that stuff's taken care of and God's just going to love me and welcome me into His kingdom. And yet Jesus is telling me right here that I need to always pray that I'm going to be found worthy on Judgment Day. That sometimes inside of me I have to be able to say, Lord, have I fallen into a trap of deception? Is my heart prone to wander and to find the things of this world attractive and that I, I would rather have the comforts of this world and, 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 and rather than the, 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 the comforts of God in my life? The truth is, yeah, uh, I I want to defend myself. I want to take care of myself. I want to I want people to think something of me. I'd like you to be impressed with me. And Jesus is telling me that that is a trap that will destroy me. That come judgment day, if you're taking things for granted, He is telling you that you always. I'd say at least every day, but he's saying always pray that we would not be, you know, lacking on Judgment Day, that we would be found worthy. Isn't that a strange terminology? Well, I'm going to be found worthy if I'm always in Christ Jesus. So I believe that God sent his son Jesus into the world and that as he died on the cross for me, that his righteousness was imparted, given accounted to me as, as his righteousness is now my righteousness. That's what we believe as Christians. And I have to believe that the only way that I can stand before God is that I would say the blood of Jesus Christ covers me. There was a blood sacrifice of Jesus. He was the little lamb of God that was sacrificed. His sacrifice makes up for my sins and then therefore I can stand before God to say, Lord, I am worthy I am righteous and I am ready. I need to turn around and say that is for the soul basis that I'm going to stand before God as righteous before him because of Jesus Christ. And so every day I do need to be reminded. I need to remember and I need to sit down and say, Lord, am I worthy to be to be counted in that number? And I have to always remind myself it's because of what Jesus Christ has done for me, not based upon my wealth, my stature and my comfort level in this world. And that destroys so many people when everything they do, they gauge themselves right before God based upon their financial status. And you know, I'm glad you got money. I'm glad there's people that are doing well. Praise the Lord. But it's a trap that can turn around and deceive us if we say, let's go the other way. Well, I'm suffering. Everything's falling apart. Therefore, God is against me. And Jesus says, don't ever think like that. No, that's what's supposed to happen. This world's got to fall apart. He's got to flush it all down the toilet, and it goes nowhere. And Jesus is going to take his saints and and grab us and bring us home. And and, and in heaven is where our heart belongs. Jesus is begging that. He says, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day will come upon you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth, Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And in the daytime, he was teaching in the temple, but in night he went out and stayed at the mountain called Olivet. And then early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Isn't it amazing to think that Jesus is speaking the truth and people are saying, you're right, Jesus. I I am entrapped in wickedness of this world and they're clinging to the words of Jesus. And you know what makes Jesus so special is that when he's teaching, and this is the core of what he's saying, is you know what? No games. No games. No games. Your cloak and dagger, your spy and your false pretenses of being righteous before God. God sees right through your little game. And, and, and this passage is screaming at us to say, can we just be honest before God? Don't, 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 don't think that you, any one thing that you have is going to get past your heart. You have to make your heart right before God. And, and you know, and just to play upon that one term, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, there's a couple different views on what that passage means. What's the fullness of the Gentiles, and what does that have to do with the return of God coming back in? Now, there's a couple of different schools of thought on that, that, that we believe that uh, some people would believe that, uh, that the fullness of the Gentiles is when sin has finally come to fruition. So we believe, for the most part, if we understand the Bible, that God was doing a wonderful work through the Jews. The Jews missed their opportunity to turn around and to uh, serve and to come to God because they were deceived by their own vain imaginations and wealth. And so if you would, that God turns around and says, I'm done working with the Jews for a period of time, and now I've got my eye, my attention on the Gentiles, the whole rest of the world. And now there's an open window for the world to turn around and to come to know God through Jesus Christ, the true Messiah. And then all of a sudden, Scripture's telling us through the fullness of the Gentiles that that window is going to shut, and God is now going to go back and deal with the Jews to fulfill His promises to bring His redemption and Redeemer back into place. And so that there's now being told us that there's a trigger point, if you would, of when the, the times of the Gentiles fulfill. And, and some people would say, well, that's just when evil has finally maximized itself in the rest of the world, God says it's time to flush it all down the toilet, start all over again and go from there. But there's other people, and I, I kind of have that view, that the times of the Gentiles, as God says, you know, that there's so many people that need to get saved. And that uh, you know, God could say there needs to be 100 million Christians need to come into the kingdom of heaven through the Gentile world. And that somewhere down the line, there's a little meter running where God turns around and says, you know, when we get 100 million, when the 100 millionth person comes through the doors, we've got all the Gentiles we need, and now we go back over here. And I find it interesting sometimes that if you understand that concept, that maybe, just maybe, God's sitting back and he's saying, you know, I just wish for somebody to get their life right, to give their heart to me. And when that happens, it's now going to be time for my return and for my rapture of the church. And The context would be that God's awaiting sometimes, waiting for people to get their heart right. And when that happens and people get saved, and when the hundredth millionth person walks through the door, whatever number God has, and only he knows the day or the hour or the amount, mount or whatever it's supposed to be, when that person walks through the door, then God can sit down and move the the wheels of prophecy forward. And sometimes that means that, uh, you know, maybe you could be that person and maybe the person sitting here and when that person gets saved, then it's all said and done. And however you take that passage, it doesn't really matter because the teaching is coming true that sooner or later, Jesus is trying to move you, move you to get to a place of being real before him. And it comes down to a simple analogy. I don't know if you want to use it this way, but Jesus is just saying, you know, you need to uh, you need to poop or get off the potty, as they say. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, in your Christian life, you can be playing a game with God with all your little, you know, well, what about, you know, a leprechaun with AIDS on the dark side of the moon, and I don't think that God's really going to be in this and this and this and this. You know what? God's not impressed with that. God doesn't want to hear your your cloak and dagger reasons and excuses. And Jesus is coming into town. He's looking for a showdown. He's going to have a showdown with you. And he's saying, you know what? I'm waiting. I'm waiting for you to get your life right and be serious about what you're doing and stop playing a game. And the bottom line of everything that's being said here is quit playing a game with God. How foolish of us to think that we can play a game with God. And so it comes down to us to sit down and to say, you know what, Lord? Today's the day. I need to sit down and get my heart right. I need to be made right. I need to to sit down and say, enough's enough. You see exactly who I am. Lord, I need you. And I want to start walking as a true disciple from here on out. And Jesus has emphatically told you today that there are traps that are set up to deceive and to destroy you, and it's going to lure you away through the vain glory of man and his wealth and the little shiny things of this world. So you sit down and say, Lord, today's the day. I, I, I want you. I need you. I need you today more than ever. And I'm begging you. I'm begging you that we could have the times of the Gentiles fulfilled. We can all go home. And when you say, Lord, you've got me. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank You and praise You. And I I would pray, Father, that this hits home to our church, to our congregation. That we would be found ready, Father, for Your return. That it would not catch us off guard. And that today, Father, we would be praying that we would be found worthy to escape these things, Father, and to come into Your joy, into Your peace, into Your presence. Father, You offer us so many things in Your kingdom. And I pray that none of us would Sacrifice your kingdom for the things of this world. Your question to us was, what does a man gain if he has the whole world and yet loses his soul? Father, I pray that today would be the day that we decide, Father, to do what needs to be done in our life and to quit playing games. Help us, Father, to be real, to be honest, to be sincere. These are perilous times, Father. The world has wrapped itself around the church and it's choking it out, Father, so it cannot bear fruit. I pray, Father, that we, as a church, would be found faithful to listen to your words, and Father, and to grow in the things that you have. Father, I pray that today we just make that decision to live for you and for you alone. We thank you, Father. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.